Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And one thing, the thing I enjoy is that email you get or that that Twitter message, direct message you get, where somebody says, hey, I, I, you know, thank you so much. I just used that idea. I just used that concept. I just used that technique in my session. And the players loved it. Like many people in the role-playing game industry, Justin Alexander has his fingerprints everywhere. We talk about the Alexandria and his website that is packed with resources and in-depth articles. We also follow his career working on games like Over the Edge, Feng Shui, and Magical Kitty Save the Day. I especially enjoyed learning his philosophy and approach to creating adventure modules. Friends, this podcast is made possible by the support of our patrons. If you think this podcast or other content I create on YouTube and Twitch are valuable, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Anyway, pull up a chair, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Justin. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Craig here on the third floor. Today we're talking to Justin Alexander. Justin designs for Atlas Games and is behind the prolific Alexandrian website and the host of tons of Twitch and YouTube content, all focused on role-playing games. So Justin, welcome to the third floor. Thank you so much for having me up here. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. So um, you're going to get subjected to my first standard question for a new guest. Um, is there was a time where you didn't know you could roll dice and pretend to be other people. And then all of a sudden you saw it. So can you take me back to uh, when it was and how it happened? When were you first exposed to tabletop role playing? All right, we're going to go way, way back. Not as far back as some people, but we're going to go back to the 80s, specifically 1989. And uh, I'm not I'm not entirely sure exactly how I became aware of role playing games for the first time. It was kind of in the air and I picked it up by osmosis. Probably had something to do with the advertisements that used to appear in Marvel Comics for Dungeons and Dragons. Probably had something to do with the novelization of E.T. where the the session that Elliot's brother is playing in in the garage actually is like described at length in the, in the novelization that I read. Uh, just it was it was out there. It was out there. It was kind of osmosis. And I loved I love speculative fiction. I loved I loved all of that. And so this role playing thing that was just kind of out there on the periphery was something that I was very interested in as a ten year old child. And you know this is this is pre internet. 
And so today I'd just be able to Google it and like right. find, you know, 9,000 free role playing games <laughs> and know exactly what was going on. But at the time, it was this mysterious thing that appeared in these magical graphical ads. And what I do remember is that having been interested in this for, for a while, which at the time felt like about 9,000 years, but was probably like three months in that sure. way that things happen at 10. I was at a comic book convention and I was leafing through a box full of back issues and there was a copy of the of the Mayfair Games Batman the role playing game that they they must have produced in the summer of 89 to go with the movie but it said Batman the role playing game on the cover and I said that's it that's the thing I've been looking for so I bought that book and I read that book and I had no idea what the heck I was supposed to do with that book and so I was like, okay, I don't get it. But my dad was like, oh, I didn't, I, you know, I hadn't really, like, the, the way kids don't tell their parents things, he, he saw me reading the book there. He's like, role-playing games, yeah. You know, I had a guy who used to, I tried to teach me how to play these things. And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I've got a couple of them. So he gives me a copy of Bunny and Burroughs, the, the original <laughs> classic 1970s yeah. game of playing, of playing literal rabbits, and also a copy of um, the old Middle-earth role-playing a box set that that Iron Crown Entertainment Ice Games did back in the eighties. Those so are I read pretty books, beautiful books, absolutely gorgeous. So I, I read Bunnies and Burrows, and I still have a no idea. I'm like, this is cool, Bunnies. I get it. I don't understand. I'm supposed to do this game still. Then I read Middle Earth Role Playing Game, and still had no idea what I was supposed to do. But but that book had a step by step process for character creation. So I managed to create a character. So I actually still have that box set. If I open it up, I still have that character sheet slid into the box. I have never played that character <laughs> or, for that matter, that game. I've never I've never come back to it. Um, but I have fond memories of it from reading through it and being like, so there's something here. I am still I am still enticed. So actually, the first the first time I played a role playing game at this point, so I've now gone through three three books, and I'm still confused. But I've picked up enough from osmosis from other sources that I I kind of understand sort of the conversation of how role playing games are supposed to work, and I know the dice are supposed to somehow resolve things. So <laughs> I actually end up making my own role playing game that I play with my brother one on one, and it's a Batman role playing game, reflecting back to that Mayfair book that I I couldn't grok. And the rules were simple. He played Batman and I was the game master. And uh, anytime Batman tried to do something, we would both roll a die. And if I rolled higher than he did, he would fail. And if he rolled higher than I did, Batman would succeed. But of course, we rolled for everything Batman tried to do. So the game starts, there's some stuff in the Batcave, and then the bat signal goes up and he gets in the Batmobile and he's driving... He's driving into Gotham and he's driving a car. That's a thing that he is doing. So we both roll the dice and I roll higher than he does. And so Batman crashes the Batmobile on the side of the road. And that's basically where that where that <laughs> session ended was with Batman crashing the Batmobile while driving down a straight road. Uh, a, a few weeks or maybe a month later, my mom took me to Pinnacle Games in Rochester, Minnesota. And I remember walking through the door of Pinnacle Games and the little strip mall where that was located. And on top of one of the shelves was a copy of the the Beckme Red Box basic set with the Larry Elmore Red Dragon on the cover threatening the 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 muscly thewed barbarian and i was like that's it and i bought that and i opened that box up and that box made sense like right. there's actually like a solo play adventure in there that walks you through and at the end it was like i get it tons of examples lots of good instruction like this is how you prep a dungeon and then this is how you run a dungeon uh easily probably the best product for ever introducing new players to the game 
ever, and I was very lucky to find it, because I don't really know how many more times I could have struck out reading through a book and being like, my 10-year-old brain doesn't get it, before I would have been like, I guess I don't get it, and I would have moved on to something else. Yep. So I'd be curious. Um, so you find the red box and you're exactly right. So the red box did a really good job of taking, I think it was like the first five or six pages explaining what the hell role playing was. And then um, the solo stuff, I've forgotten about that. That was a big deal because most kids that are getting the red box didn't have anybody else to play with. Right. So mm-hmm. that gave them a chance to kind of work through the um, mechanics. And one of the things that has come up a million times, Justin, on this podcast is is how RPGs burn memories in your brain, right? So you talk about the red box and that solo adventure. I remember either in the solo adventure or the first adventure, uh, there being a huge centipede as one of the first monsters. Yes, that yep, that giant centipede. Right? Yep. But but how crazy is that, right? I haven't looked at a red box in who knows how long, embarrassingly a long time ago. But you talking about that immediately stirs up and invokes that burned in memory. And I could see the picture, the black and white picture of this mm-hmm. giant centipede that you're supposed to get him in this. I think it was like a five, six room dungeon. Oh, my goodness. Isn't yeah, that yeah. funny? I, I had completely forgotten that centipede too. So you said immediately that black and white picture, yep. bam, right there. It's something else. So uh, what was next then for you, Justin? So you get the red box. You kind of teach it to yourself. Uh, is it uh, the classic story? Get a bunch of kids um, from the neighborhood. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I got my brother back. Uh, he was somewhat skeptical after his first exposure, ex- first exposure to it, um, but I managed to get him back and, and play a little bit um, with the uh, with the um, uh, the, fir- the first adventure module I, m- I remember buying was actually B three B three Keep of the um, uh, the Palace of the Silver Princess. Nice. And uh, I played that module a lot. Just a really nice, compact little dungeon, well keyed. You could just really play through it really tight. So I ran that dungeon a lot um, in the early days. And then um, the not the year I got into role playing, but then that would have been like the summer. But then the school year after that, there was actually a group of kids. We were in in a a split fifth, sixth grade classroom. And there was a group of sixth graders who had had been playing D&D for a while. And I came into the class and joined up with them. And that was just that was pure. That was pure you know, playground style D and D where any given week, one of us would be like, I have, I have drawn up a dungeon or I have purchased a module. You guys grab your characters and come on in. And we, and we we each had like a stable of two or three characters each that we would grab from and play. Um, But we, you know, so there were days when we were playing, we were actually playing two times a day. Like we play, we play like in the morning break period. And then again at lunch. And sometimes we get together after school. And sometimes the sessions are just like 10 or 15 minutes stolen here or there. But like we were just playing constantly. Um, And uh, eventually we all had like 36 level characters, which was like the level (laughs) cap for, for the Beckney, for the Beckney series of of basic expert companion master. Um, Yeah, we all had like 36 level characters. We all had folders with like uh, graph paper where we'd mapped out like our our thieves guilds for our rogues and and our our fortresses for our our fighters and our our, uh, uh, wizard schools and towers for our wizards. Um, We all had those kind of mapped out. We didn't have any clue what we were really doing. It was all chaos, but it was just pure creativity focused into a mosh pit. That's fantastic. Now, um, so you go through high school. Now, in your later years in high school, did you continue playing or uh, did your interest wane? I actually bounced, I got bounced out of it a little bit. Um, and uh, that had less to do with my interest waning and more that uh, the, the people I've been playing with went one direction and I ended up in a different city. And I was not successful in finding other people to play with at that point. I actually fell into theater around this time. So I was doing a lot of acting 
um, in high school. And then immediately after high school, I was also pursuing acting in the local theater community. Um, so I was doing that for several years. And then it was actually through theater that I actually got back back into it um, in a major way. I had a, my, my, my next major group of players that I was playing with on a regular basis were people I met through through theater, through a production we did um, and ended up joining their group where they were running. They were running a game of the uh, West End game, Star Wars game. Nice. And I ended up playing. So the 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 the, the game master for that game, uh, when you create a character, he he said you have to cast your character. It has to be played by an actor to pick an actor because it's Star Wars, and everyone in Star Wars is played sure. by an actor. So I played a I played a Jedi Knight of the Old Republic. This was before Phantom Menace came out, but a Jedi Knight of the Old Republic who had been carbon freezed um, and uh, in Carbonite. And uh, and was woken up by the PCs in the era of the New Republic, played by Sean Connery. Very um, nice. And so, so it's this Jedi just being like, uh, "Thank you, thank you very much." And just like, just with a terrible Scottish accent. I'm still terrible at doing Scottish accents, <laughs> as you can hear right now on this on this podcast. Um, <laughs> so you you got to play the grumpy old Jedi. Yes, the yeah, the grumpy old Jedi who knew so much more, um, and uh, and was very upset when the uh, the new Empire began blowing up more planets. So at, at that point, you're, you're back into it. You have found a group. And I would imagine playing with a bunch of peop- theater people um, was a little bit different than playing with those high school kids, right? I'm <laughs> it sure was you, very different. Yeah. I got a much more immersive experience and kind of got to, f- to kind of flex some muscles in that process. Um, is there then a transition where you start going, you know, um, I, I think I want to do more than just run games and play. I want to start creating content for this one. Does that bug start to pop up yeah so, so that bug actually crops up crops up a lot earlier so going all the way back to like uh, to, to late elementary early early junior high i actually had fallen into um to bbsing um and and those those little dial-up modem kind of things and some of those bbs's were connected through a network called fidonet which a lot of people most people probably have no idea what that is these days so so for my younger listeners bbs is it was a bulletin board system this is pre-web there's no web pages or anything everything is text um it's where i sold my uh, uh, complete set of beta cards of magic. I mean, it's it. Uh, people don't people don't realize that there was a time that you didn't click on anything. There wasn't even mice to your computer. But go ahead. I just wanted to bring everybody up to speed. Not everybody's old like you and me, right? So, so fighting that. So you had these little BBSs that you dial up with with your modem, and, and basically one person could be on the BBS at a time because it was one other guy's computer with a modem that you were calling out. And uh, and Fidonet basically, when when they didn't have users calling in, these little BBSs would call each other and basically swap messages back and forth. And so, if you wrote a message in in Minneapolis, for example, the Minneapolis bulletin board would call a place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and so forth and so on. And someone in California might see your de- your message like three or four days later. Everything was non sequential. But there was on Fidonet these message groups, and uh, there was actually a very active role playing sub community. And so, when those guys in sixth grade went one way, and I I went the other way. Um, I ended up on FireNet, and so for a couple of years there, I was very my my one outlet for RPG stuff was was online was online gaming, uh, play by post, play by play by yeah. mail. And uh, so I did that for a while. And the other thing that was part of that community was that people would just write articles and post them to the to the echoes is what they called them was the message board. And so they would post these articles to the echoes. And that was really cool. So I started doing that. I started writing up like new magic items, new classes, um, all kinds of weird stuff and uh, I'm posting those. And then uh, I, I tried to get that published in Dragon Magazine. I would write in for the submission uh, Dragon, uh, the old Shadis Magazine, um, Space Gamer from Steve Jackson Games, White Wolf Magazine from even before they were 
doing the world of darkness. So I like, I like a file folder. Actually, I still have that file folder of, you know, paper. You had to, you had to actually write, write a letter, put a stamp on it and mail it to the publisher so they could mail back the submission guidelines so that you could follow the correct guidelines and format your manuscript and then send them in and have them write back and say, Stop sending us scripts, 12-year-old boy. garbage. (laughs) You're 12 years old. I don't know what you're doing. They're actually scrupulously polite. Like, it's actually probably the best industry to try and break into as a 12-year-old. And, um, uh, but yeah, so like, for for years, had no success with that. My my actual break-in happened right around the same time I was falling back into, not having pickup games, but having this regular group through the theater, which was... um, so I'd, I'd fallen out, I'd fallen out of, of role playing games in the mid nineties and was doing theater and focusing on, on late high school stuff. Uh, but I had maintained my subscription to Dragon Magazine and it would show up every, every week, every month and I would at least flip through it and, and enjoy flipping through it. And then, and then there came a year and I realized, you know, it's been several months since I received a copy of, of Dragon Magazine. Like what happened to my subscription? I'm pretty sure I still. And what I didn't know at the time, because the internet was still not really there yet, um, was just kind of showing up at this point, was that TSR was going bankrupt and Wizards of the Coast was buying them and Dragon had stopped shipping to me because nothing was being published because TSR couldn't pay their printers anymore. And I eventually found that out because I picked up a copy of, uh, of the Comic Buyer's Guide, which is a weekly update newspaper, and they and they had an article in there saying, "Hey, TSR went bankrupt," and I was like, "Holy crap!" Uh, and so, so I got I went back online to my my BBSs at that point, went to the Fidonet and Usenet at that point as well, um, and was on those sort of online message groups trying to find out what is going on with TSR. And as a result of being back in those communities again, I learned about a couple of new role-playing games that had just come out. And one of those was the Heavy Gear role-playing game by uh, DreamPod9. It was an old mecha game in the 90s. They actually ended up doing a couple of computer games of it as well. Uh, when Activision lost the Battletech license, they went and licensed Heavy Gear from um, from DreamPod9 to do, I think, two more Heavy Gear games with them. They also had an animated TV series that came out back then. Yeah, crazy stuff. No kidding. See, the name rings a bell, and like I vaguely, but I, I never knew there was a game behind it. So yeah, was, yeah, the game was the original was the original uh, source point for it. It's both a miniatures game and a uh, and a role playing game. Um, and they were big in the '90s, uh, one of the big ones, and then they just kind of faded away. They actually DreamPod9 still around. They run Kickstarters every so often. They they actually recently announced they're hoping to do a reboot of, of Heavy Gear, but no kidding. They they really haven't been doing anything lately, unfortunately. But that game that game really looked interesting. Um, and then there was another game called Feng Shui, which was oh, by yeah. Robin D. Lars, and that was uh, that was based on Hong Kong action films. And uh, so the both of those looked really interesting to me. And so uh, I was at my dad's place that summer in Mankato, Minnesota, and I would get on my I would get on my bike and I biked down to downtown Mankato. Mankato is not that large, so the downtown's like five buildings or whatever. So I, I biked down there, but there's there's a hobby store down there, and there wasn't a gaming store, but there was a hobby store. Like most of it was trains and model planes and all that type of stuff. But whoever ran the store must have been. Like someone, someone at that store was tied into the role playing scene because they they only had one bookshelf full of role playing games, but the, but the selection was really deep. Like typically, you get one shelf and be full of D and D stuff at most, right? This this place had a lot of new releases, and they had both heavy gear and feng shui. And so I spent I spent what little money I had as a teenager uh, buying a copy of feng shui and a copy of heavy gear. And those two games really kind of got me like impassioned about doing role playing games again, uh, particularly particularly feng shui. Um, because feng shui also 
uh, based on these Hong Kong action movies, which, which at the time people didn't like people. It was kind of still a subculture thing. I hadn't been exposed to yet. But Robin D. Laws was passionate about them and like included a huge appendix with a list of really cool movies. And so the next time I biked into downtown, I went to Suncoast Video right. and, and, and went to their Hong Kong cinema section and, and bought bought Jackie Chan movies and watched Jackie Chan's police story for the first time. And that was a really cool, like mind blowing expansion kind of thing. Um, so, so yeah, so those two games and one of those, this is a long story, but one of those was <laughs> heavy gear and heavy gear, uh, dream pod nine. We're just talking about all the ancient messaging technology. Dream pod nine ran a mailing list, which for the younger viewers out there, uh, you, what you did with the mailing list was you had an email address and you would send an email to a listserv and say, can you send me all the emails that people send to you for this group? And then you'd get emails from everyone who was sending to the same listserv. So all of you'd be like on the heavy gear mailing list and you'd get, you know, 30 or 40 emails a day from all the heavy gear fans who were on the mailing list. So I was on that. I was on that, um, that, that mailing list. And one day, uh, Jean Carreras, whose last name I'm probably butchering, uh, who was an editor at DreamPod9, posts saying, hey, uh, there's this new site called RPGNet, which is starting <laughs> up for the first time and is looking for reviews. And if you guys wouldn't mind going there and posting some reviews of our Heavy Gear game, that would be great. Well, I had actually written up a review of Paxton Gambit, which was one of the Heavy Gear books, that I had posted to the Heavy Gear mailing list. And so I was like, well, I've already got the text. I might as well pop over to this new website and just post it there. And so I did. And I got a lot of comments and positive feedback there. So I said, well, I should I should do that again. And over the next couple of years, I ended up writing 200 reviews for RPGNet. Um, and it was really interesting because, like, it was... It, like the main, like the idea of internet forums is only beginning to get going. RPG net now, of course, if people go there, they're like most of the site is the forum. They didn't have any forum software yet. The forums were the reviews. They would post reviews every week that would then have like a comment section underneath it. And so that was really addictive to kind of like write these reviews, have them posted on this site and be sort of the center of conversation and discussing, discussing sure. these ideas and tossing them back and forth. So I wrote, I wrote a lot of them and got a bit of a reputation. If I, I do say so myself, that reputation eventually fed back into DreamPod9. Um, they had an open call. I put together a query letter and sent it, sent it to them. The, so that query letter, I had three ideas and I slaved over those three ideas, like getting the perfect two paragraph pitch for each one of those ideas for like two weeks. I was like, this is it. I've got to get this right. Your it's going to be great. This is it. These, these are the ideas. So I, I, I carefully do the whole thing. I format the email. I'm getting ready to send it. And at the last minute, I'm like, oh, and also here's a cool idea. Maybe we could do a thing with the Saragossa and terrorists send. I get I get a reply back from Philip Bouye, who was another editor there at DreamPod9, and he says, your first three ideas are garbage. Like, he was more polite about it, but, like, the subtext was clearly, that's garbage, you should, like, never do that again, and this sucks. But that fourth idea that you that's spun funny. off in, like, the 10 PBS. seconds, <laughs> that's the one. We're buying that, write, write a 64-page book about it. No um, kidding. Yeah, no, that was my first professional sale. That book doesn't exist. You, it never got published for reasons. It has nothing to do with my writing on it. Um, it was part of a subline of books that the first two or three books in the line didn't sell well. So they were like, we're canceling the line. Sorry, your book is never going to get published. But I did end up, they asked me to rewrite the material for what they called their storyline book. So eventually it did end up being published in a very short form. Some of the material survived. But 
But that was my first sale was was such a weird, convoluted way of getting to it. But so I'd be curious, Justin, during this time, how are you eating, paying rent and stuff like that? So how are you surviving as this as this starts to germinate? Right. So this is this is college. I'm in college. And so my day job is well, I say day job. My day job is going to classes. My evening job was Hollywood video. And then somewhere in between the two of those things, I would for your younger viewers, there used to be video stores that rented that rented VHS tapes, and one of them was called Hollywood Video, and I worked there renting renting physical things. You didn't click things. on videos; yeah. you inserted videos. Right. It was it was a very primitive DRM method where they would encase the movie in a, in a hard plastic shell, and, and you, you had, had to find fifty cents if you didn't rewind the little fucker. Right. <laughs> Uh, so I was doing that, which was also great because I could I could rent uh, Hong Kong action movies among other things for free as an employee perk. Um, but uh, but so I was doing that, and so I, I was doing that, and I was at college uh, through that. Um, and uh, and when the D twenty boom happened around the release of Third Edition, I actually ended up transitioning pretty heavily into that. Um, one of the reasons for that is that on these online Usenet groups I was participating on. Ryan Dancy, who was a VP at Wizards of the Coast back then, overseeing D&D, he, uh, he posted saying, uh, we, we get into debates, and he, so he was posting these ideas about this new thing called the open gaming license. And there was a lot of skepticism about it. There was a lot of skepticism about whether third edition D&D could actually fix all the problems with, with AD&D and it's some of its legacy issues. And I was one of the people saying, I don't, I don't get it. I don't believe it. This seems, this seems fishy. And Ryan said, Ryan, Ryan, bless his heart, said, well, what if I send you a playtest copy of third edition and you take a look at it? So he sends me a playtest copy, the, the PHB, and I run a couple playtest sessions that I send him back my playtest feedback. And I'm converted. I, you know, third edition, actually, I was like, this is like all the house rules I ever made for second edition are oh, somehow no just kidding. in this book. And so I was con- completely converted. And so when the D20 boom started happening and all these other publishers through the open gaming license were able to publish D&D material for the first time... As someone who was just breaking into the industry, I was perfectly positioned to publish a whole bunch of different D20 books for Fantasy Flight Games. I did material, Troll Lord Games, did some stuff with Atlas Games back then as well through their Penumbra line. There's someone else I'm forgetting, but like, oh, also did, there was a lot of magazines back in the day, like Campaign Magazine for D20 content. I had a couple, I had a regular column in that magazine for a while. So that was my big sign of introduction. And then as I come out of college, I'm like, well, I kind of have a choice here is that I can, you know, I can pursue the pursue this 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 thing and and it looks like it's paying off and i can actually put some time into it and like do it or i can or i can go out and like you know real world it uh and i chose i chose i chose the role-playing games and i actually had lined up a bunch of work and enough to pay for rent for a couple of years and it all seemed to be coming together and then wizards released 3.5 and the d20 collapse happened and the company that was publishing the magazine that i had a regular column in went out of business uh, another company who had published a book, uh, went out of business before being able to pay me for that book. Uh, another company canceled two of the books I had been working on that I was expecting to get paydays for. And so I had gone from from like being like, I have lined up for at least the next 18 months. I've lined up uh, a good solid, a good solid five figure income for that that will pay my rent and everything else to suddenly not getting paid for any of that work. 
And the reality is, like, as a freelancer, like, the, uh, there's no way to fix that because right. it, you have to spend six months generating the next 100,000 words that are somehow going to pay your rent. And there so was no avenues for self-publishing at that point, right? You were you were beholden to a publisher at that point, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, at that time, right around that time was around the time that The Forge was really breaking out and you were beginning to see indie stuff break out. But there was nothing accessible. You needed to have some sort of, like, lump of cash in your pocket to pay the printer's bill to get the books printed to, to send out to people. And I didn't I didn't have that lump of cash. I was, of course, in desperate straits at that point. So at that point, I, I bounced out of the industry, actually, for a few years. I was still playing games, but I, I bounced out of the industry and went and worked for a... Uh, uh, I actually worked for a uh, American Express, but they had actually... they At the time, they had a printing company that was part of American Express that was and because American Express actually did so much printing, they would print prospectuses for their sure. investments and all of their invoices and so forth. Um, so all that, they actually had like a whole printing company. So I worked for them for a couple of years. That got spun off into its own subsidiary company. Um, and I ended up working for them for a little bit and, and then ended up transitioning eventually back into, back into role-playing games again. But there was a big gap there um, about five years long where I was not actually in the industry. Yeah, and and for those that weren't around at the time, that the D twenty boom was big, um, and it, it launched a lot of game companies. I mean, there was a lot of people and a lot of companies making a living off of D twenty, um, but it ended up being a huge bubble, like you like you alluded to, and it just collapsed. And then four comes, you know, fourth edition comes around, and that causes its own problems as well. Um, and that's when you see the rise of Pathfinder. There's a whole history there that's very it's very very interesting. Um, the reason I found you originally, Justin, is your cheat sheets on your great website, The Alexandrian. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. When we come back from the break, I want to talk about where The Alexandrian started, uh, what was the idea behind it, and uh, how it all came together. So we'll be right back. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. DZ Learguard here, creator of the M3E Crew Builder app, and I'm a patron of Third Floor Wars because supporting great content creators like them is one of the best ways to help grow this game. So to join me and the other floor heads, go to patreon.com and search for Third Floor Wars, and we will see you there. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. 
I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to some of the original patrons that started us on this journey. Special thanks to Jesse Ellis, Sam Newman, Nick Westbrook, Jim Ortiz, Kevin Smith, Keith Suderman, Matthew Riddle, Dane Leergaard, Jeremy Peace, Bookie Gunner, Chris Blue, Voslov, Kim Otto Nielsen, Rolf Randall, John Haas, Cody Hyatt, Michael Roper, Ambrose Ingram, Pudgy Hobbit, Kaiser and Crimson, Brandon Sommer, Jason Reddy, Jason Burry, Kylie Woodland, Brian Schooner, Alan Voltz, and Owen. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a regular basis, and I appreciate it. So I think it was, um, I had just started getting back into role-playing. COVID hit, um, I, and just so you know, Justin, uh, the listeners are tired of hearing this, but I took a 20 year break from role playing. Um, only did miniature gaming, um, and was very much into miniature gaming. That's where this podcast began as a miniature game podcast. We still cover miniature games on it, but there's more and more role playing content because as my interests shift, so does the podcast. But, um, uh, it would have been just about a year now, uh, ago. I was like, you know what? I miss role playing games and that's much easier to execute in the times of COVID than it is for me to try to play miniature games. So um, I uh, came across Fantasy Flight Star Wars and uh, finally got a group of people that were going to play with me and started searching for some player aids and came to Year Force and Destiny 1, which is still the best cheat sheet out there for the Fantasy Flight game system. Um, and then that led me down a rabbit hole. And I just realized <laughs> that this Alexandrian website is chock full of content, chock full of content. So let's talk about where the where the website started. Sure. So at this point, at this point, I've taken I pick up. I'm in the middle. I'm actually in the middle of my gap from like being actively involved in the role playing game industry. Um, like I say, I'm still playing occasionally, uh, but I have taken this gap. And so I'm in the middle of this gap. But so I'd written these 200. I'd written these 200 reviews for RPG Net, um, which were no longer online. And I had also, like I mentioned, I had, I had a column in a D20 magazine for a few months. I had a whole bunch of articles that I published through uh, Pyramid magazine with Steve Jackson Games and and a, a campaign magazine and Gaming Outpost. And um, I'm forgetting, there's another, there's a couple other magazines. There was a lot of magazines in the D20 boom as well that unfortunately also went away as it all closed down. Um, but so I had all this content that like I'd written, it was it was stuff that had been out in the world previously, but was no longer out in the world. And so I said, well, what I should do is I should I should start a website, get a website up and upload this stuff. And one of the reasons one of the things that specifically prompted this was I was actually editing Wikipedia articles, um, <laughs> you know, because you know, it's not like a like any kind of like massive thing. But occasionally sure. be like, yeah, sure. So I had an account. And, and that pays there. well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Like, it was, it was, it was a hobby. I was just you know, I had like I had just a couple things and like some I had edited I had edited, edited the series of articles on the Seleucid dynasty to add a to add a box at the bottom that would say, you know, at, at the bottom of such and so the previous emperor was so and so and the next emperor is nice. such and such like real early Wikipedia stuff. And so I'd done that and somebody had had spotted my name on that, gone to my about page on Wikipedia and seen I was the guy who wrote a review of a game called Immortal which was no one's going to remember immortal these days. It was a nineties RPG at the height of the white wolf obsession with world of darkness. This is a different company um, who, who was basically like a world of darkness. Knockoff is too hard a word. There was actually a ton of, yeah, Jason, there was a ton of really creative ideas in this game, but the game itself was horribly unorganized. It was just like, it was like this, this fire hose of amazing lore 
that was tuned off. This game had a main text, and then it had a sidebar that ran through the whole book, which had a different text that ran from page to page, out of sync with the main text. And then also had, at the bottom of every page, every two-page spread, had another bottom bar that was a, a timeline of the whole history of the setting that would run from the beginning of the book to the back of the book. So, like, three different... like that was, And, and if the whole book was like that. Just crazy organization. So when I wrote a review for it for RPGNet, I actually... It was a very long review because I was like, look, here's the deal. I've seen other people write reviews. They're like, this game doesn't make any sense. I'm like, this game makes sense. If, if, if you break your brain sufficiently to do it. And here's, right. and what I did was I, I had actually written like, look, here's the breakdown of how it works in a way that the book, I guess kind of like the cheat sheet you were yeah. just talking about. Very similar, except this was also lore based where I was explaining like how this incredibly awesome game world worked in a way that the book unfortunately didn't for a lot of people. So this guy, this guy, e this guy emails me on my Wikipedia, messages me on my Wikipedia page. And he says, you're Justin Bacon who wrote that review. I've been looking for that review because I really need it to, like, I want to run the game, but I need that review and I can't find it. Like, well, it's not online anymore. So this guy out of the blue just asked me for this review I'd written several years earlier. And that was the final impetus was like, you know what? I should get that back online. There's people looking for it um, and probably other stuff as well. So I, I buy a domain, the Alexandrian.net, which is a pun on my last name, obviously, Justin Alexander, the Alexandrian. And my initial intention was to just post was just to post this this uh, archive of, of stuff. Older articles, older reviews of role-playing games, and also fiction books. I'd done a, a short little column of what I'm reading uh, for a while. And so I was just posting that stuff up there. And uh, and that that's how the site got started, was just no literally having to archive my old stuff and just have a place where if somebody wants it or needs it, they can find it or I can link it to them and, and they can find it. So that's how the site started. Uh, so, so where did it blossom from there? So obviously you, you start getting some traffic. I do. Uh, it's interesting because, like, so, like, there was this there was this archive site. I would occasionally like post little op-ed pieces about various things. Uh, one of the interesting things about the earliest days of the Alexandrian, you can still find this to some extent, is that these days it's ninety five percent role playing games. At the yep. beginning, it was like maybe like thirty percent role playing games. Um, I had got I had, I had got some political essays up there. I had a lot of theater stuff that was up there as well. Um, and, and you can still find some of that stuff on the Alexandria. I, I occasionally do a feature called Shakespeare Sundays where I talk about Shakespeare, for example. But, um, but yeah, so the early days was a real, was a real hodgepodge. Uh, but I would post a little bit of original content from time to time. But there was no audience. Like, I could see on my, on my audience tracker that, like, it was, it was double-digit people a month kind of thing. So I was like, it's sure. great that it's there, but it's not doing anything meaningful. Again, random chance. Like, I, this is the thing I find fascinating is, is like, you, you, you know, you, you spend years trying and then it's the random chance. It's the, th it's the last thing we're like, actually, one last idea about the Saragossan terrorists. For the Alexandrian, it was um, the there was slash is a, a guy called Seamus Young who has a website, uh, SeamusYoung.com, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I, I found his website because he did a, something called um, The DM of the Rings, which was a comic strip using screenshots from the Lord of the Rings movie with the conceit that the characters in the movie were the PCs of players. And so all the dialogue in the comic strip um, was as if these players were playing with this DM. And um, and there's a whole bunch of comics like that these days, but this is, this is old enough that this was actually like the, the granddaddy of all of those. And Seamus had allegedly gone on and, and talked about his role-playing interests and uh, a bunch of other stuff. And Seamus has done a ton of great stuff. People should check him out. But there was a discussion in a comment section of one of his posts where he had talked about how the uh, encumbrance rate rating for swords 
was too high because they're listed in pounds and actual swords don't weigh as many pounds as D&D claims a sword weighs. And there was, there was a, a bunch of discussion, a bunch of debate there about, well, well, the reason they do that is because it's not real pounds, it's like figurative pounds, and because the sword is long. And, and as part of that whole conversation, I start talking about the ways in which 3rd edition uh, actually does tie does tie the, the numbers of the system close enough to the real world that you can make some assessments about how powerful the characters, you know, really are. And so I end up writing an article called uh, D&D Calibrating Your Expectations. And one of the big conclusions of that article was like, if you look at if you look at the numbers of what a D&D character can do, particularly in third edition, when you have things like take 10 and take 20, that kind of really kind of zoom in on this is how this is the maximum outcome they can have. This is what they can do on a reliable basis. You can look at those numbers uh, and you can say, well, look at a character like Aragorn and Aragorn is like a, a fifth level character. Right. Like and most of the characters you see in fantasy fiction are like fifth level characters. And I know that when that when uh, that when people when when game companies publish stats for characters like Conan or Farford and the Grey Mouse or, or whatever, they often stat them up as like 20th level characters. And they do that because, hey, you know, Conan's Conan's the best. So he's got to right. be the best. But my point was this creates a dissonance between between your expectations of, of what the game system should be doing and what the game system's actually doing. Because what the game system's actually doing at 20th level is you're running demigods. And and so you, if you want, you know, gritty, farfoot in the gray mouse or slash Conan style fantasy, but the game system keeps telling you, yeah, but they can jump off a cliff and, you know, fight dragons one-handed and, and you know, slay gods. Like, there's a dissonance there and it becomes frustrating to have that dissonance. So... This was a lengthy article looking at hardcore numbers and everything else. And I, I, to this day, don't actually know what caused it to go viral. I'm pretty sure someone posted it to an old site called StumbleUpon, and it became very popular on StumbleUpon. Um, and, um, and, and so I, to this day, I don't know who posted it there, yeah. I, but I owe them an eternal debt of gratitude because thousands and thousands of people began coming to the Alexandrian to recalibrating your expectations. And it would cycle... Like, like it, would, it would die down a little bit, and then a couple of weeks later, somebody would repost it to stumble upon as a, as, a, as a classic, and it would get a whole new slew of people. And the thing is, the thing is, once you have an audience, once you know that a thousand people are going to read the crap that you're writing, yep. you, you'll write more crap. And so if I hadn't had calibrating D&D calibrating your expectations to tell me that there's an audience... I don't, you know, the Alexandrian may, is probably still there. I'm probably still dumping like 20 bucks a year or something in hosting fees or whatever to like archive my old stuff, but I'm probably not creating new content every month because it was directly on the back of, oh, well, people are reading this stuff. I guess I should write up this idea I've had about three clue rule. And that's the, that's the next major article I write for the Alexandrian. And I only write it because I know I've got thousands of people coming to the site. Yep. Yep. So uh, what's the process then now that you know that you've got an audience? Um, is it is it I've got an idea and I'm going to hash it out here or I'm getting feedback? Like, where does the next ideas come from? That's always that's always the tricky question to ask any writer is where do the ideas come from? And it to some extent, it's the same answer people give about about stories, which is that I, I either have a notebook or the digital equivalent of a notebook. And whenever an idea strikes, which may be because I'm writing a novel or because I'm reading a rule book or because I'm in the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking over my notes in the last play test that I did. 
um, I jot those notes down. And so they come from a lot of different sort of inspirations. Uh, a major source is actually like, you know, I was talking about being on Seamus Young's comment section, but also participating in forums and, and Reddit and Twitter. And frequently I'll be like, you know, if I just wrote, if I just wrote 20 tweets on a subject, like a 20 tweet thread on a subject, that probably means that my, 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 I have some sort of percolation there, which I should probably explore a bit more. Right. Um, so a lot of that comes, comes from just that. I, I will say though, like my experience is, is that I am absolutely terrible at figuring out what, what people actually will get enthusiastic about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just terrible at it. Like, so, so I write D&D Calibrating Expectations as a really easy example. I'm just like, well, this is, this is the thing that I wrote for, like, one specific person on Seamus Young's comment section. And, of course, it, it, it blows huge. Um, I, write, I, write the, I write the three clue rule, and even more than that, the follow-up to the three clue rule which was uh, node-based scenario design. So for those who may not be familiar with the Alexandrian, the three-clue rule is basically a rule of thumb for designing effective mysteries, which is that for any conclusion you want the PCs to make, you need to include at least three clues pointing at that conclusion. And that conclusion can be like the solution to the mystery, like who murdered him. It can also be, uh, one of those conclusions can also be um, like where you can go for more clues. And yep. so if you, you, you string those together and you have, you have a mystery scenario. Um, so that's the three clue rule. Node based scenario design is, is kind of an advanced version of that where I kind of invert that, that rule. And I say, look, the other thing you can do is that you can also say in practice that if the PCs, that the players have any, any three clues, that they'll likely be able to reach at least one conclusion. Interesting. And, and what that lets you do is so if, you, if you're just using the three clue rule, then what you can do is you can, you can have a scene A and have three clues pointing to scene B, and in scene B you can have three clues pointing to scene C and so forth. And it's, it, you know you create a linear breadcrumb trail style of mystery. But with node-based design, in scene A I can have clues pointing to scenes B, C, and D, like one clue each. And I don't know, maybe they find all three, maybe they figure out what all three mean, and they can go to any one of those scenes, but the odds are they'll find at least one and be able to go to one of those scenes and keep the adventure moving on. And when you get to that scene, you have three clues in that scene pointing to other locations, etc. And you can roll it on. Now, when I wrote node-based scenario design 10, 12 more years ago as sort of a sequel to three clue rule, I got about halfway through writing it and I said to myself, this is silly. Like, this is just, this is just applied three clue rule. Like, if you've read three clue rule... This is obvious. There's no need for me to write this. But I finish it and I post it. And it is, again, one of the most popular things on the Alexandrian and probably one of the most important things I've ever personally personally written. But in the, in the moment of writing it, I'm sitting there being like, no one's going to ever read this. And if they do, they're going to be like, no kidding, man. I already read the previous article you wrote about this. So like, it's so easy to do, though, Justin. It's so right. easy to assume because because it makes total sense in your head, right? You're writing this thing out and going, shit, I'm just rehashing the three clue rule. <laughs> you know, I'm just reskinning it, right? Or, or coming at it sideways instead of forwards. And people are going to read this and go, boy, this guy's a one trick pony. Um, but it's easy to take that for granted. Um, it, there's things that I have verbal on this podcast that I get incredible feedback from. And I'm like, well, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, of course that's what it was, <laughs> but I guess I had to say it out loud or you wouldn't have, you know, but, but, you know, people, we take for granted our linear line of thinking uh, and that people, because we're egomaniacs, people think the way we do and they just don't. And that doesn't make the way you think better than anybody else. It's just unique to you. 
Um, but it's very easy to make that assumption. So that's fascinating. So after the Alexandrian starts to pick up some traffic, then you start um, start to be recognized as a thinker. Right. Um, and you and and really, um, you know, thinking of things. I mean, there's all kinds of people that are producing RPG content. Um, and it sounds like the stuff that was hitting for you was more. I don't want to say higher level, uh, more cerebral, right? More theory. You know, you get to the point where you, so is, did you find yourself like that was your niche? Um, did you find this is where I'm comfortable is, is writing along this way is more of just writing modules or, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can write for the industry, right? right. Um, is this the type of writing that you found uh, to be one received as well as it was and what you like to do? Yes, I think overall, um, I, I will say the, the one thing, the one thing I've been trying to write for a decade now is a true node-based campaign uh, in the line of Massive Nihilethotep or Eternal Lies. Uh, and I, I have been struggling to make that happen. Um, so that's, that's on my bucket list. I, I would actually love to do more adventure design work, and there's more of that coming. Um, but that's not to say that, like, I don't enjoy the, the cerebral stuff, like you say. I do enjoy it, and, I, and I, I actually find it, at this point, very easy to write. I have a lot of experience writing it and and it seems to be there's a great deal of value and one thing the thing i enjoy is that email you get or that that twitter message direct message you get where somebody says hey i I, you know thank you so much i just use that idea i just use that concept i just use that technique in my session and the players loved it and so and so knowing that like people are designing better mystery scenarios uh they are designing better heists they are running better MPCs, they are having better sessions and they are spreading that joy. That is really gratifying for me as a creator to know that my advice is operating on that level. And and like this is also why like I just launched my YouTube channel and the the, the video series I launched with was called uh, is called Advanced Game Mastery. And that's kind of where a lot of my work has aimed. Is I, is I am not I'm not trying to give you beginner's advice. I'm not trying to tell you the first three steps. There's there's some of that. But but a lot of it is like I'm assuming my my audience for the Alexandria and I am assuming you have been running games or you know what you want to be doing in running a game. And I am going to talk to you on that level. And it's going to be a combination of both the practical step by step of this is what you should do to get to the point you want to be, but also the theory behind that step by step and why it works. It's a fantastic niche, uh, Justin, I got to tell you, because um and this is both the articles as well as especially the YouTube videos and, and the Twitch live streams you do. We don't see a whole lot of that. It's not, you know, five ways to to write an adventure or five ways to run this. I mean, it is it is um, higher level, like you said, more for advanced uh, uh, advanced GMs that are out there and advanced players, too, to be honest with you. Um The biggest thing for me and the reason I've been enjoying it as much as I have is it's all actionable. Which is, you know, as much as we talk about being cerebral in theory, you also do a very good job of of giving solid examples that I, as a GM, can go, okay, I can now do one, two, and three based off of what was said. So hats off on that. It's a, it's a very unique uh, angle, Justin, and I'm glad that um, that you're enjoying doing it because that means I'll get more of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the key. I think that's one thing. Like that's one thing I, I am reacting to with with the stuff I write, which is that there's there's a ton of GM advice out there, and so much of it is general or it's world building advice, where it's like start by building a village and make all the people in it, and then you know design the dungeon outside. But there's no but there's no like 
you know, it goes all the way back to my experience as a 10 year old kid reading through the Batman book and, and the Middle Earth role playing book and, and reading them cover to cover, like word by word. And at the end of it, having no idea <laughs> what it is I'm supposed to do. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. So like a lot of it is like being like, no, there, there is, there is a procedure that you can follow. And it's not like, you know, people sometimes hear the word procedure and they think, well, like it's like a computer program. No, that's not what I'm writing. Not at all. Uh, it, but there are procedures you can follow in terms of, of how to respond to things at the table about how to design and how to prep that that will result in in specific effects in in the game. Yeah. And, and and doing that level of analysis and breaking it down that way allows us to take the pieces and reconstruct them our own way. Right. And allows mm-hmm. us and and. I might watch a video of yours, Justin, and there's 10, 10 concepts in there, right? I might only take two of them, right? The other mm-hmm. eight don't apply to me, and that's fine. What's great is somebody else is going to pick up three other ones that didn't apply to them. So being able to piece it together. But for you to identify the audience, I think, is a smart move, which is to say, you know, I'm going to assume a certain level of uh, adeptness at this. And we're not going to talk about that. That's already taken care of and allows you to be a bit, little bit more focused. Um, so let's talk about what's next. So uh, what's the future now? Is it going to be more video, more print, both? That's a really, that's a really good question. And I'm kind of exploring that right now. Um, I, I, you know, I've been doing the Alexandria as a blog uh, starting in 2005 is when the site launched. And I've been doing it exclusively as kind of a all text, really, uh, up until up until last year. And. Uh, last year, I launched a Twitch stream, and then uh, earlier this year, just a month ago, I launched a YouTube channel. And and one of the things I've been looking at is like, well, what are my goals with these things? Which is one of the reasons why people have been saying, well, you should do videos for a while. And I'm like, well, what what do my videos actually look like? What is the function of those videos? And part of that is personal. Like, I think I prefer text articles because I can go back and reference them. I can easily find information in them. I process information better on a personal level that way. But I know that there are a lot of people who who don't read blogs, who only watch videos. There's a, there's an audience of people out there who, you know, I'm going to be egotistical for them, would benefit from the ideas that I'm offering and uh, that I'm not reaching with a blog and can't reach with a blog. So so I'm trying to figure out, like, what what is the actual content that should be text? What is the content that should be video? That's more of a Venn diagram. There's overlap there, obviously. I was about to say, you can do both, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like, I, I, you know, I've been reassuring my, my Patreon, my Patreon patrons that like the, the, the website's not going anywhere just because I'm making videos now doesn't mean the text goes away, partly because there's a ton of stuff that you can put into a text article that is useful as a text article that if you did it as a video would not actually be useful. Um, and like, you know, you're talking about like the cheat sheets for, for fantasy flight star Wars game. I did that's a, that's a, that's an extreme example of it, but like, you know, a video cheat sheet, what does it even mean? Like you can't reference it at the table. Like it doesn't mean anything. Um, and, and then there's a, there's a, there's a huge spectrum there, but like even stuff like the, um, even stuff like node based design, I think in many ways often works better in text because again, you can reference it and go back and, and, and look at that stuff. But the three clue rule you did a video for. I did. Yes. And so there is, you know, there is that balance and like one of the things, so I've got both the Twitch channel I'm doing and also my YouTube channel and people said, well, when are you going to put the Twitch material on YouTube? And I've been resisting that because I actually think that the approach to what Twitch is good at and what YouTube is good at aren't always the same thing. Now, that's a broad that's a broad overstatement because, of course, YouTube also has a ton of live streaming capability. now. Correct. But but what you do in the live stream in terms of chatting back and forth with people and just kind of like talking through ideas and rambling is a really good thing and is a great way to interact with people and answer questions and the like. But what I'm trying to do with the YouTube videos is I am trying to capture some of that. Um, 
conceptual tightness. Right. I, I want those videos to be a tight package that is well organized. Um, I actually I, I joke with people like if, if you ever see me upload a video, which starts with five minutes of me saying, so I was thinking about doing this video and then I was talking to someone about doing this video. Some people ask me a question about this video and then I thought I'm not going to do that video. But then I thought I am going to do that video. Now, a word from my sponsor. Now that I'm back, there's this idea I've been playing. with, And it's just like if you ever see me doing that, I have definitely been taken over by a pod person because that's not. <laughs> That's it's something we for. see all the time. Right. <laughs> you know, you're like, well, Jesus Christ, you can actually make the video now because we're 10 <laughs> right, minutes in. <laughs> It'd be really great if you talked about what the freaking title I clicked right. on was. That'd be great. Can we uh, do that real quick? <laughs> That's funny. Um, so, guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about something new, which is Over the Edge. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So um, we've talked about the, uh, the Justin, the great philosopher. Let's talk about Justin actually makes shit. Um, so tell me about Over the Edge. So, so Over the Edge is, is a classic role-playing game uh, created by Jonathan Tweet. And uh, it's published by Atlas Games. And something we haven't really touched on is that my current, my current day job is actually the RPG producer at Atlas Games. So let's take a step back then, Justin. How does that opportunity present itself? Oh, that's that is that is an example of sort of just so many random chances again. Um, I'll try and keep it short because it kind of ends up being like a life story thing. So I'm back in the industry for a while. Uh, I've been doing the Alexandrian. I've been sending out query letters, doing some short assignments and the like. And I ended up I ended up reaching out to a company that was relatively new at the time, Modifius Entertainment, who now has like every game under, under the sun. Yeah. But at the time I approached them, they they had just published Mutant Chronicles with their 2D20 system, and they were just getting ready to gear up a couple of new games. And so I'd approached them, sent them a query letter. They were interested. I did a little bit of work on Mutant Chronicles. And then uh, Chris Birch, uh, the owner of the company, said, hey, I've actually just licensed the Infinity Universe from Corvus Belly, which is nice. a uh, tactical miniatures game. Yeah, my uh, listener's uh, very familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, fantastic space opera, kitchen sink. Uh, would you like to, instead of doing this campaign for Mutant Chronicles you're looking at, would you like to come over and do adventures for Infinity? I was like, sure. So I pop over there, and I'm, I'm working on Infinity. and. Uh, I go to Gen Con and uh, that year, and there's going to be a meeting with between me and the um, and and Monica Valentinelli, who who Modifius has hired to be the new RPG producer for the Infinity Line. And so I have a really great meeting with her back and forth. And uh, shortly after I have that meeting, Chris Birch calls me up and he says, "So I was talking to Monica, and she thinks that you should be the producer for the Infinity role playing game." 
you, she says, your knowledge is great. Your passion about the project is great. And you should be the RPG producer. So she's taking a step back and she thinks you should take the gig. And I was like, I, I was flabbergasted. And, and I call her Monica here because that is the nicest thing anyone has ever done for me. No kidding. Outside of like my wife. I, my wife has done many <laughs> nice things for me. But like, you know, just, and like, I, I never met Monica before. It was our first interaction. But, but like, that's just the nicest thing anyone has ever done, done for me. Um, and so I ended up becoming the producer for the, the Infinity RPG. Um, and, uh, it was a bit of a state. Monica, they brought Monica on because the previous person in charge had actually left and the game was kind of in a half-finished state. And so I ended up co-developing and co-designing that game and doing a lot of great work on that game. And uh, really proud of that. We got the we got the core game out, the first supplements, got the got the whole line going in the right direction. Uh, and then I was a little burned out. Um, and so I took a step back. Uh, shortly after I took a step back, uh, Atlas Games, um, Cam Banks, uh, had been their RPG producer for several years. He actually arranged... Um, bringing back... So Atlas Games has been around for like 30 years. They published Ars Magica and Feng Shui and Unknown Armies and Over the Edge, uh, all back in the 90s, classic award-winning games. Um, but when Cam came on board, uh, they hadn't really done anything new with their RPGs for a while. Uh, they had also published D20 stuff, and when the, the collapse happened out of that, there was there was shockwaves for that for them as well. And uh, so Cam on board, he, he relaunched Feng Shui 2 with a new edition. He relaunched Unknown Armies with a new edition. And he relaunched Over the Edge with a new edition. And um, so all those games had new editions. Uh, but Cam was moving back home to New Zealand and so was having to leave the position. So Alice was looking to hire. Cam has been doing fantastic work with his system, Cortex Prime, which he initially developed when he was working at Margaret Weiss Productions on Leverage and Smallville and those games. Uh, and they just lost Cortex Prime. Fantastic work he's been doing. So he is thriving. But I was able to interview for this position. And uh, I think partly the work at Merdifius was really crucial in me being qualified for that position. Right. Uh, but I also on the Alexandrian, I had done a remix of the Eternal Lies campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. And the Eternal Lies campaign was written by uh, Jeff Tidball and Will Hindmarch and um, Jeremy Keller. And Jeff Tidball is actually this uh, was actually the uh, the chief operations officer at Atlas, and he was the one who actually interviewed me for the position. So I guess yeah, that's that's the nexus. It's like if if Monica doesn't doesn't rec- doesn't recommend me to take over that gig, I don't get the practical skills necessary to run RPG lines. And uh, if I don't do that Eternal Lies remix, I don't know how much that really factored into Jeff's decision to hire me. But um, he, he he appears to be a fan of me going in and and, and working on his stuff. So. <laughs> Uh, so, the, they, you know, it's just, again, those sort of like you, you work and you work and then eventually you discover that those things all added up to something that you didn't even know you were you were aiming at. So let's I want to talk about the Infinity game for a little bit. Was that really the first time that you had really had your fingerprints all over a, a game that got published? Yes. Yeah, so in terms of core rule books, yes. All my previous work had been on uh, had been on um, on adventures or supplements um, rather than or reviews rather than actually the core game of a of a release. So what was that like to get that out in the wild? And um, I mean, Infinity has a, a passionate core uh, fan group with with the with the uh, a miniature game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you you had a, you had an audience there waiting for it. You you unleash that out there. What was that like having it out in the wild that way, getting the feedback and stuff like that? Really amazing, really fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the truth is, like, there was a very hard road to get to that book actually coming out for a number of reasons. Um, but but when the book was out, it was fantastic. And so part of the problem is that when I got to that point, I was also burned out on the whole project. I've been I've been 
eating, drinking, sleeping, and playing Infinity and nothing but Infinity for a long time. So the book comes out. Everyone else is excited about it. I'm like, I need to take a break from studying Infinity. Last thing I want to do is look at that damn thing. Um, but yeah, so I came back to it about six months later. I was like, oh no, this is good. This is, <laughs> this is good. I'm, I'm proud of this. Um, but yeah, that was, that was actually a lot of fun. Um, yeah, part, part of the, one of the challenges we had there was purely logistical, which was, as I mentioned, when I came on board, they had just published Mutant Chronicles and Jay Little, who did the, um, the Fantasy Flight Star Jay's Wars Little, game. Jay Little's yeah. been on the show. Oh, fantastic. He's a great yeah, guy. Great and guy. He, he had designed the 2D20 system for Mutant Chronicles for Modiphius. And now Modiphius was working to, kind of create an SRD and have all of their games be on that same engine. But we were all still trying to figure out what being on the same engine meant. It wasn't like a GURPS or Champions where it's the same rule every time. Right. And so there was a lot of back and forth negotiation trying to figure out, well, how how much, what exactly things are essential to 2D20, what things need to be in this game, and what things can we adjust without, you know... So there was at this page, there was a lot of back and forth. But Diffie seems to figure that out now in terms of what needs to be there and what is more flexible. And uh, but there was a, this was the point where we figured it out. And and those birthing pains can be can be tough. Yeah, yeah, which which has to be a messy process. Absolutely, yeah. And and it was really it was interesting because like so when I came on board with the project, they they had um, they had a life path system for character creation in place, and they had they had a handful of core mechanics. And one of the biggest problems Chris was having at the time was that he wasn't happy with the core mechanics because they weren't they weren't reflecting the mechanics of the miniature game. Um, and that was something we belonged to do. So as we were redoing the core mechanics, we also discovered, of course, that, you know, the life path system, which had been designed, needed to also be retrofitted as well. So there was a lot of thinking we were in one place and then discovering we were actually further back than we actually were. But I was super happy with how that system finally came together. One of the cool things in in the miniatures game is that there's both a physical fight and also uh, what they call the uh, info war, uh, the hacking element of it. Um, and we really wanted to bring that element into the role playing game. And the trick with that is that 2D20 is a pretty crunchy system to begin with. Right. And so if you have, yeah, we actually ended up with a, a warfare, a combat system, info war, and psi war. And, and the trick with that is that if all of those were super crunchy, uh, the game would be impossibly top heavy and impossible to learn. And right. so the key insight I had was I said, well, okay, what we need to do is we need to have all three of these systems work exactly the same. They need to right. all be on the exact same mechanics. They'll use different skills for their attacks as a very simple explanation. But the actual mechanics, like in terms of... So, for example, in Warfare, you have you have a zone-based combat system where the zones are physical spaces. In Infowar, you have a zone-based system where the zones are different systems in the internet, in the, in yep. the, uh, in the Maya network of, of Infinity. And in, in Psywar, the different zones are people and organizations that you are, that you are navigating through. Right. But the actual mechanics for how you move are the same across the board. So if you know one set of mechanics, you actually can play in any one of those uh, without having to learn. And it was real difficult to find that balance because the, the danger you run into is if there's only, if, if you, they are almost the same, but only slight differences, that's actually more difficult. That's the problem you run into with like grappling in, in a lot of games. Uh, like third edition D&D classically has terrible grappling rules. They're actually just fine. It's just that they are almost the normal combat rules, but with like seven differences. And trying to remember what the seven differences are is insanely difficult. Um, well, you see that you see that in other games too, where they say, right. you know, personal combats this way, but ship combats this way, or or uh, starship combats this way, or, or horseback, you know, and stuff like that. And I know exactly what you're saying. You want it to be familiar, but 
Yeah, I've actually found you want to go one way or the other. So Infinity, we went with nothing's different. Like the mechanics have to work exactly the same. And then we layer specific maneuvers on top of that, right. which are not the same maneuvers with, with slightly different changes. They're distinct for each one. Or you have to go the opposite way and say, you know what? If you want to have ship combat and personal combat, they're going to be two completely different systems that will have yep. no confusion about what you're doing when you get into each one of those subsystems. That was a major that was that, one of my major lessons from playtesting Infinity was that that's the reality is if you're in that middle section, you will you will not have a playable game because it's going to be much more complicated for the players than it needs to be. So that makes a ton of sense. So you end up getting hired by Atlas Games. Yes. Yes. That was what we were talking about. We were talking about Atlas. Yeah. Uh, getting hired by Atlas. So I get hired by Atlas Games. So I come on board with Atlas Games. Like I say, Cam has rebooted Feng Shui 2 and Unknown Armies and uh, and Over the Edge. And he, he was just wrapping up the process with Jonathan Tweet uh, and Chris Lights. Uh, who actually I'd worked with Chris on um, on Infinity. He did he did some stuff for Infinity for us. Uh, he had left my he left my team at Infinity to come over and do Over the Edge with Jonathan Tweet, and then I came over <laughs> to to finish that. So so Cam had done all the development with Jonathan, and I came in at the end. And as, as Cam is leaving the country, I'm working uh, to make sure that the book gets its final proofreading, and then eventually uh, all the logistics of of getting it out into the marketplace. Um, so that's that's my background on Over the Edge. Um, and how I got there. So um, one of the things I noted on there was the uh, Island Anthology. What is that? Yeah. So so the basic concept of Over the Edge is that the, the game takes place on an island called Alamarja. And it is the game is 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 a counterculture conspiracy driven game. And on the island of Alamarja, all the conspiracies of the world have come together to to fight their proxy battles for like control of whatever it is they want control over probably the world. Uh, some of them, the universe and some of them time itself. Like that's the kind of thing. And so like the, the thing I talk about is that you can take any conspiracy in the real world, you can put it on Alan Marja and give it a twist. So uh, for example, um, like in the real world, there's a conspiracy theory that like fluoride is like a mind, mind control thing. That's ridiculous. The reality is that fluoride leaves a film on your teeth that acts as a microphone so the government can listen to all of your conversations. Phenomenal. And like, so you can do that with any real world conspiracy sure. theory. Give it the twist. And of course, you can also take, you know, you know, stuff like reptoids, for example. Reptoids are just there. You just know that they're there, right? Um, and so there's, there's, there's all this fantastic stuff and you can add more stuff to it. And, and Jonathan Tweet just has this fervid imagination that takes reality and warps it. And that one weird twist thing is actually something that's baked into the character creation of the game. Jonathan talks about the fact that the character creation in Over the Edge is, is just fantastic. It's so flexible. You can play anything you can imagine because character creation is based around a, around a couple of tra traits, your main trait and your side trait. And those aren't like feats or classes or whatever, or even like a skill list. You can, you can describe your trait as anything. You can be an MMA wrestler. You can be a paranormal investigator. You can be uh, a vengeful ghost. Like whatever, whatever description you want to put in there, you can put in there. And the one piece of advice that Jonathan says is, is that you want to give it you want to give it a twist. And I refer to it as the one weird twist. And right. And that one weird twist is basically if you have a concept that you could expect to see in a Hollywood movie or on TV or in a best-selling novel, you want to give it an extra twist. So you can play a vampire. That's great. But play a vampire who drinks human tears or is addicted to or is allergic to blood uh, or is, is teetotal. Like find some way to take that concept and give it an extra twist to make it to make it weird, and you'll probably be pretty close to what Over the Edge wants you to be. So, 
That's a really cool thing about Over the Edge. The anthology you were talking about is is actually the first project I took on when it came to Atlas was doing an anthology called Welcome to the Island, which was an anthology of four adventures for for Over the Edge. And so we uh, we had a team uh, consisting of um, uh, of myself, uh, Nick Bate, Jonathan Kilstwing, Jeremy Tui, and Jonathan Tweet himself, uh, who came on board to design these four adventures. Um, and, uh, and, and introduce people to the island. So what is that? Pro- I mean, it's, it's such a huge universe and a huge flexible concept. Um, like I, I'm, I'm trying to think of like, where do you start creating an adventure in that world? This, this was a major, this is actually a major, um, challenge that I we bet. had. And it was something that, that as I looked at, so one of the first things I did when I, when I took the Alice job, I said, okay, well, so like a good 20% of my time is actually going back and reading everything you've ever published for these games, which is like 240 books total. I'm still wow. working on that project two years later because like that's a lot of books yeah. uh, to work my way through. But one of the, my first ones was to start working my way through the old over the edge products. And like a lot of role playing games, uh, but this one, but this one particularly so because it is so wide open and you can do so many things in it as players. One of the unique challenges is that uh, if, if, if you as a player character group can do anything, how do I as a publisher publish an adventure that you can use? And and D&D has that solved because everyone is everyone is, is a, a wandering adventurer who takes who takes gigs. And so I just have a gig and you take it and that's the adventure. Right. Um, but like over the edge, it was tricky. So uh, what I what I essentially came up with was that I said, okay, well, well, what you need is to have a scenario hook that that is applicable. And in D&D, that's easy because everyone has the same scenario hook. But I said, okay, well, we need to have a probably a set of scenario hooks for each scenario that, that can be flexibly applied. And so what I went through is I kind of went through and, and talked to over-the-edge fans, looked at old over-the-edge books, uh, and kind of figured out what kinds of things people actually are doing with this crazy game where one group can be running a haunted subway store and another group can be uh, James Bond espionage type characters who are fighting the reptoids. And yeah. I said, okay, so what, what are the things you can do? And I broke it down into five broad categories. Um, I said, well, there, there are, uh, agents, there are burgers, which is a term for people who are new to the island and have arrived in Alamaja for the first time there. They're burgers in the sense that like fresh meat is raw. <laughs> right. Um, there are cloaks, which are the people kind of like actively engaged with the conspiracy factions on the island. Uh, there are gangs, which is kind of the same thing, but at a street level. And then there are mystics who are focused on what Jonathan Tweet calls the mystic shit of the setting. Um, <laughs> okay. the Doctor Strange types or right. the, the Scarlet Witch types. Uh, and, um, and so I said, okay, well, those, those are our categories. And what you need to do as designers is for your scenario, you need to give me a scenario hook for each one of those that explains why agents and burgers and cloaks and gangs and mystics would be involved. And, and, you know, it should be general enough within that category that whether you're playing the reptoids or you're playing MI6 or you're playing the vampire uh, spies who've been working for the Transylvanian Secret Service, whichever one of those you're doing, if I give you this agent hook, it will hopefully be broad enough that can kind of go in. And so the advice I gave is, you know, if it's an agent, for example, uh, why would someone hire the PCs to get involved in this scenario? Or alternatively, why do the PCs need to do this on behalf of their patron without explicit orders? Whereas if it was a cloak, which is kind of the spy stuff, why would the various conspiracies on the island care about this scenario and send their trusty agents, the PCs, to deal with it? Or alternatively, what opportunity 
do the PCs become aware of and how do they become aware of it? And so you do that for each one of those. And that seems to have solved the problem. And it did so in two ways. Obviously, the direct one, which is if you're running something that falls within one of those five categories, which was most GMs in the setting, you probably have that. What I found interesting, though, in playtest was how often someone might be running a cloak type campaign where their characters are all in a conspiracy. But because of the specifics of their campaign, actually, the gang level hook was more appropriate or the burger hook was yep. more appropriate for their characters. So that was one thing was just by giving five very distinct scenario hooks, it, it gave the GM a wider swath of tools to kind of figure out, oh, well, this one's close enough. I can yep. I can torque it in. Um, but also the combinations of two or more also helped torque it in. Yep. And then the other thing that all this fed into is I also discovered readers of the Alexandrian. Now, I'm all about designing situations, not plots. It's actually an article called Don't Prep Plots, where the, the tagline is Don't Prep Plots, Prep Situations. Right. Um, and so obviously, as the RPG producer on this anthology, I very heavily said, we are not prepping plots, we are prepping situations. And I actually discovered that by requiring requiring the writers to creatively think about having five different hooks that they needed to have, five very distinct hooks coming from very different places, that when they did that, it really pushed the scenario creation into a situation. Because once you've had, once you have five different agendas that all coming together potentially into one scenario, that scenario has to be flexible enough for all of those agendas. And that inherently opens it up into a field where people are more actively playing that scenario rather than just following a linear sequence. With so many different entry points into the situations, how did you help the writer structure like these adventures? Because, you know, granted, first problem solved, right? We figured out a way to drag existing games into this. Now, how do you structure it after that to, to, to accommodate all of those visitors? Right. So, this is this is the point where we're spending a decade and a half writing cerebral shit on my website really pays <laughs> off. I, I had a feeling this would come in. <laughs> because because I could frequently, thankfully, just be able to be like, okay, so uh, this is your scenario concept. That's great. Looks like a node-based scenario design to me. Why don't you go read node-based scenario design on my website, and that'll tell you what you need to do. Uh, this looks like a heist. So let's, you know, go, look, go read my article on heists and make sure you're, you're hitting that structure. So having spent a lot of time thinking about how scenarios are structured, uh, having written articles describing how that works uh, was a huge advantage in terms of being able to just be like, here's the specific tool that you need to go do that. Now, what I actually love about this book a lot, though, is that um, is that all the authors, uh, Nick Bate and, and Jonathan Kilstring and Jeremy Tui and, and, and Jonathan Tweet, all took basic structures and said, OK, well, how can we how can we twist this and customize it to what to what we specifically want to do here? And there's a lot of really cool stuff that's kind of fallen out of that. Um, I'm going to take a more a more recent example of this because it's fresher in my mind. But we actually have a new adventure for the Feng Shui game coming out called uh, Burning Dragon, which is um, which was written by Jonathan Kilstring, and it takes place at a festival in the Mongolian in the Mon in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. And the PCs go there and have to explore the, the festival and stop evil sorcerers who are trying to do a do a ritual there. As and, we do, yeah, as you do. And so <laughs> on on the Alexandria, and I had written an article about running. Uh, big parties, big social events, and the structure by which you do that, that you you put together a guest list, you put together a main event timeline, and then this is how you use those things in play. And it's designed for like big social events, big parties. Um, and so, but but as Jonathan Kilstring, we're, we're kind of exploring how to handle this festival, how to present this festival in a way that the GM could 
could run it and the players could engage with it uh, flexibly in, in an active play, we realized that we could use this we could use this same sort of party structure and just blow it up to a larger scale where now instead of like one party, it could be a whole festival and then yep. tweaked it a little bit. I actually posted an article recently on the Alexandrian talking about how we did that and presenting the new festival structure, which is kind of derived from, but very distinct now from that. And that's a good example of how you, you know, you t- we took those, those structures found ways to push the boundaries on them. And then the interesting thing is once you've pushed the boundaries, suddenly now I have a scenario structure that works for any kind of large, uh, large event. I could run a Gen Con scenario with that, right. uh, where there's like murders at Gen Con, for example. Yeah. Um, and so, so it becomes a, a very flexible structure to use in new ways. So that was a really exciting pro- part of that process. And so to get back to kind of your original question, is like, how do you get all these different groups kind of, of in that? Uh, I'll use the example of uh, Sefferson's Mysterious Estate, which was the scenario that I, I wrote with Jonathan Tweet for the book. And the concept behind Sefferson's Mysterious Estate, spoilers, is that the PCs get basically invited to or crash a party run by Dr. Severson, who is kind of an Elon Musk kind of figure. She is, she's rich. She's, um, she's kind of an Elon Musk if he actually was as clever as Elon Musk thinks he is. Let's put it that way. Okay. Good. Uh, like he's kind of Reed Richards with, with, so, so she's very clever. She's doing a lot of stuff with kind of like experimental technology. Um, and and so there's a whole bunch of uh, of uh, there's this there's this little sort of mini convention that's taking place at her estate with a bunch of other fringe tech scientists and the like who have come in and and other uh, weird weird people and, and weird connections and stuff. Um, and so like the, the, the I think the thing the, the the tagline was that like um, you've been invited to the most important party on the entire island. Uh, unfortunately, uh, other people also have invitations like Doctor Morpheus, an astral vampire, a team of totem champions, and a presidential's wet works uh, wet works squad. Uh, and so and so we actually used the party structure for this adventure that I was just talking about, um, where we had a guest list with all these really wacky characters. We had a main event line of things that would happen at the event um, as the PCs were there. We had topics of conversation where these are the things people are talking about and what some of the NPCs think about it. Uh, but the structure then is those tools are all there, but then there's, there's actually a process, the procedure that the, the GM can follow where they get to actively play all that in response to the choices that the PCs make. And so Severson's Mysterious Estate is about as close to a sandbox as a, as a single scenario can get. Because we, we wrote it with all of these things. There's all these people. There's these weird inventions. There's people with agendas. There are things that are going to happen. But there's not actually any specific reason why the PCs are there. That is for the players to figure out. And the hooks right. for that adventure give different guidance on like, well, if you want to get them here, um, this is, you know, if they're, if, they're, if they're burgers, for example, completely new to the island, it's because every time Severson used a machine to print some invitations out, it would include their names. And she was like, okay, but I don't know those people, delete. And then she'd print them again and their names would come out again. So she was like, you know what, let's go ahead and send those and see what happens. And that's how they come to so the cool. to the convention. And like, you know, but then that's completely up to them. Like, what do they what do they make out of that? And, and yeah. so forth and, and so on. Uh, I talk about like how, for example, uh, the gang members, like one hook would be that she needs, she needs security, extra security. So she hires like members from the local gangs to come up and, and provide that. So... So a bunch of different ways about how you get there. But once you're there, it really is just like there's all this stuff going on. What are you going to make of it? What are your agendas and how can all of this crazy interstice of the island serve your needs as players? So I'm going to I'm going to try to spit this back to you and tell me if I've captured it. So it sounds to me like you're you're building this this microsystem, right? This this ecosystem that has has 
a, a world in and of itself. People are people are living in that. They have their own agendas. They have their own drives. There's a timeline that that's happening. And then you're going to let the GM say, OK, bring your PCs in. Let's shake all this shit up and let's see what happens. Does that sound about right? That's about right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, pretty that's much cool. It. And that's kind of the Yeah, that's kind of the purest version of, of, of that. And and it's a structure, like I said, I came up with years ago just for running running parties because I found that social events were really difficult to run because it was like there's so much going on. How do you actually engage with it. And so simple procedures, handful of tools, and then run with it and see what happens. And that's not the only thing, obviously, we did in the book. There's another adventure called, um, this is actually one of my favorite titles of all time. The adventure is called A Conclave of Chikutorpals, or The Winds of Change Are Blowing Up, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Multidimensional Convergence. That's the title of Jonathan Killstring's adventure. I just, I love that title. Now I want to see the table of contents. So much, so much. Uh, and so, um, like on the back cover, actually, of the book, if I, if I remember correctly, on the back cover, uh, like there's short little descriptions of each of the four adventures. And for that one, it's just the title. We just put the we put That's the title fantastic. in and that was all we put back there. Um, so, Justin, what's it like? What's it like partnering with writers that way? Um, so having that, you know, having a main writer that's that's working on the work and, and, and you're contributing and you're editing and you're bouncing ideas. What's that process like? It It varies a lot depending on the project and the individual writer. And it's still something I'm finding my way on um, in the case of so going back like so my first time being in a role like that with Atmodifius with the with the infinity game and that that process had the the added layer that we could bounce ideas back and forth but eventually we had to send a manuscript to Corvus Belli who owns the property and they needed to sign off on it and uh, to a large extent the infinity universe exists entirely in the mind of Gutierrez who created it Yep. And there isn't like uh, I've worked on other licensed products before and they have like series Bibles, for example, that lay out like what the what that is. That doesn't exist. Doesn't exist for Corpus Belly. It's just up in Gutierrez's head. So like we would create stuff that we were, you know, hopefully this will work. And we'd, we'd throw it down there and then Gutierrez would be like, oh, no, there's this thing I never told anybody about that turns out the space station actually does this, this and the other thing. Like, oh, right. OK, great. Let's do that instead. Um, so there was always, that there was an extra wrinkle to it. Sure. Um, at Atlas, obviously, we don't have that extra wrinkle. Um, but part of it is just is, is is figuring out what the best way is to make use of of my years of experience. Um, and and part, part of the difficulty for me is just getting over the idea that, like, I still feel like a neophyte, even though I've been sure. doing this for years. Yep. So coming over there and being, no, actually, I do have experience that I should be helping you with. And so uh, so we've been we've been experimenting and trying to figure it out. And uh, and I think that the process I, I've recently been gravitating towards is the idea that the thing I'm I'm really good at uh, is is figuring out the right structure for making the ideas accessible to the GM and making it easy for them to run the scenario in an active way. And so I've been leaning more heavily towards the idea that when I get pitches from the writers, that if it isn't already there, the structure isn't already there, I I seem to be heavy handed maybe isn't the right word. I just need to be given more guidance of saying, okay, well, this is specifically because my, 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 I'm always, I'm always, my impulse is always to be like, here's some ideas and go run with it and see what happens. Um, but that, that can actually sometimes be more confusing than it is, than it is elucidating. And so, so like I'm leaning more heavily towards, okay, well, you have this adventure that, for example, uh, an upcoming feng shui adventure called will temporarily have Paris by Paul Dean. Uh, you have this adventure that is all about, you know, punching Nazis in the face in 1944, Paris, France. Um, so, uh, let's figure out the best way to get as many Nazis punched as possible. And here's the specific structure that you should use to, to get there. Um, so I've been leaning more heavily on that seems to be going pretty well. Good. What's, what's interesting is that. 
is that now I'm reaching the phase with the next round of projects where I've got these some writers who I've worked with on two or three projects at this point, and some of them are, are now getting it or grokking it, and I don't have to take that heavy hand. So there's kind of this weird oscillation. Um, I can't talk about that project. It's still top secret. So I'll just have to tantalize and say there's a really cool project. I've got some really cool people working on that's going to look at some really cool new structures for feng shui coming oh, up. Oh, that's fun. Now, I would imagine, too, you start to begin to come up with a language with each individual writer, right? Where you start yeah. to figure out what you don't have to talk about anymore, What where this writer needs a little bit of help, where they can help you and and establishing that relationship and trust. I would imagine that's part of it. Absolutely. Every every writer, including myself, has has unique strengths and also unique weaknesses. And part of my job as the producer is to play into their strengths offer them support in their weaknesses, and in the long term, uh, you know, turn their weaknesses into strengths. Like, it, it is also a development process. Um, particularly, like, there's a number of people uh, who I've worked with over the years who it's, it's their first gig, and I try to be mindful of that, that this, this is your first professional gig. I'm going, I'm going to try to leave you in a better place at the end of this gig, whether it's for my next project with you or whoever whoever your next project is, whether it's, it's somebody else's you're working for or, or your self-published project that you want to go on to. I'm going to try and leave you in a better place uh, than when you came on to this project. Right. As I was imagine people have done for you. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. So, guys, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk a little bit more about feng shui. We're going to talk about magical kitties. Save the day. We'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So as I'd mentioned, um, Justin, I, you know, took a huge break and uh, a lot happened in the RPG industry while I was gone. Um, <laughs> but there, there are certain games that as I started to get back into role playing and just realizing, you know, when I left, there was D&D champions and GURPS, right? I come back and it's like, holy crap, <laughs> like, like there's a lot of freaking games. Um, but one that and I haven't played it yet and I haven't read it yet, but one that keeps bubbling up. Like when I start, you start having a conversation with somebody and you're like, hey, I dig this game. I dig this game. This is what I like about this. Blades in the Dark School, you know, and then they go, have you tried feng shui? Like that's one that keeps coming up again and again and again. So you guys are producing content for feng shui. So what's exciting um, about playing in that universe? Yeah, so fun, Feng Shui is really interesting because it first came out back in 96. And when it came out in 96, it was blisteringly cutting edge. And now a lot of what it does, people have come in and stolen and, and done yeah. cool stuff with it over the years. Like one classic example is, as far as I know, Feng Shui was the first game to feature mooks who went down in one hit. And now that is just a thing you find in all kinds of systems all over the place. Um, but back in 96, you'd be like, this is the game where like the mooks get taken out by one hit. But if I talk about it that way these days, people are like, uh, yeah. Yeah, you it's might as well be saying, now. like, you roll dice and then 
So there's a ten. There's twenty sides, <laughs> and then you add numbers to it. <laughs> yeah. But there's still all kinds of things that make feng shui super cool and unique, even this day. So as I mentioned earlier, feng shui is a game that was inspired by Robin D. Laws's love of Hong Kong action films: Jackie Chan, Jet Li, John Woo, um, all of that, uh, Michelle Yao, all of that. And uh, and he and so he wanted to, he wanted to do a game that kind of let you play as those action heroes. Uh, and, and the cool twist he came up with, he said, okay, well, so for example, Jet Li has like once upon a time in China where he's fighting against British imperialists in the 19th century. And, and there's, there's, there's older ancient, uh, kung fu dramas. And then of course there's Jackie Chan as a cop in the modern day. And then also there's a whole subgenre of like speculative fiction and science fiction stuff in the future. How can you take all of these elements and put them in one game? And people had previously made games like that for various genres, like, well, this is the action movie, uh, game. And you can do a campaign here and you can do a campaign there. And Robin said, well, I don't want to do a campaign here and a campaign there. I want to do a campaign where I do all that stuff. Right. And so the, the concept he came up with was was a limited time travel. So the way it works is that um, feng shui is called feng shui because the flow of chi through the world controls history. And part of the flow of chi opens portals. And those portals from the modern world lead to a place called the netherworld, which lies between times. And the netherworld has portals to other specific junctures. And the real trick to this is that the time in each juncture moves in sync with each other. So the other junctures are 690 A.D., 1850 A.D., today, and then also a Mad Max future populated by cyber apes. Interesting. And so you can go into the netherworld on Tuesday in our world and go to the future and spend three days there and then come back to the netherworld. But time has moved in sync. So now it's Thursday or now it would be Friday, three days later. Right. Right. And so you can't jump into your own past. So the game isn't about temporal paradoxes or time travel. It's it uses time travel as a mechanism to do Mad Max one week and then fight British imperialists the next and then go back and be a pirate in the Pearl Delta in 690 the next, and then come back and join the Vice Squad uh, in, 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 in the modern day. And to do all of those things as one set of characters at one time. And that's really cool to pack yeah. all of that in. Um, and then the game, the game's just fantastic to play. Robin designs a combat system where you, and again, this has been stolen, but this is still just the pure, the pure mainline of it, which is, which is the key thing is that everything in the game system is designed to encourage the players to, to engage with the environment creatively. Like one key rule, for example, is he says, look, okay, so you have, you have a weapon, you have your main attack, whatever that is, or your main gun that you're shooting, whatever that is, if you pick up, if you pick up a piece of concrete from the scene and hurl it at someone's head, uh, you will not, you will do the same damage as the weapon that is your main weapon. So you will never be discouraged from doing something cool because because the bamboo rod does less damage than your AK-47. Right. I don't want you to sit there and be like, well, I can't pick up this ladder like Jackie Chan does and do a whole fight with it because ladders are an improvised weapon or whatever. You are never going to suffer as a result of that. So that is a really cool rule all by itself. You've got the yeah. move rules we already talked about, which really allow you to create these huge combats, obviously, where people are being mowed down left and right. 80s action film style um, and then so forth. The other cool thing is it also uses a uh, initiative system, uh, which uses shots. So you generate initiative score. That's the shot you start on. So like you might start on shot 15. Each action you take costs a number of shots. Like you take a three shot action, you'll spend three shots and your next action will be in shot 12. 
And so because different actions take different amounts, different numbers of shots, you get this really interesting ebb and flow where throughout a given sequence, as the game calls it, players are taking actions in different orders, which tends to mix up and make the fight feel more dynamic it just feeds the dynamism the other cool thing it does is is each of those shots the terminology comes from the actual film right it's a film shot and this doesn't always work out but frequently as the gm and as the group you can imagine the shot where the three characters in shot 15 are all taking their action simultaneously and combine that into one cool gestalt moment and then move on to the next shot. You can also use empty shots in the game. Where like, If everyone skipped over shot 14, for example, you can, as the GM, take that shot to take a moment and say, okay, well, this is what's going on in the scene, or, or maybe the gasoline has been lit on fire, and I'm going to establish that as a threat, for example. And so that initiative system, when you, it takes a little while to get into it. I'm not going to lie. It's very different from other initiative systems you may have played with, um, and you probably want to have a visual reference for it. Um, which is available in the book. You can just copy the page and away you go. Yeah. Um, to have that, but if you have that visual reference and you can get into the flow of it, it, it really, it really brings out sort of the dynamics of combat and the, and the cinematic flow of combat. So those are all the cool reasons to play Feng Shui is the cool setting, the cool system and the ability to punch Nazis in the face. So is there any non-top secret feng shui stuff we can talk about coming out of Atlas? We can actually, yeah. So this is actually, so since since joining the company at the very end of 2018, and one of my goals has been to get feng shui material uh, back and actively in print. Uh, Cam had relaunched line in 2014, but then we just, we haven't been able to produce any additional supplements for it. And my goal was, I was like, we, I want to get some stuff out there. So actually, uh, late last year, we launched a subscription program for feng shui. Uh, to let fans sign up and tell us, hey, there is enough demand for these books so that we can safely print them. There's, there's so much uncertainty in the RPG industry yeah. in general, and with COVID last year in particular, that it's just really difficult to be like, well, we can print 2,000 of these, and I guess then then hope <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that the demand is there. There's a reason Kickstarter has done so much for the mm-hmm. RPG industry, because it's exactly what you're saying. It allows you to know what, what the demand is. Exactly. And so our goal with the subscription program is just like, if we can just get a, a core number of fans who are, you know, the big major fans of feng shui who want to have feng shui content on a regular basis, if we can get, an, if, if enough of those people exist that we can, you know, pay the production costs and the creative costs for the books, then there's no reason we can't just produce those books on a regular basis. And that's, that's currently working. Like we've, we've hit that's the minimum great. thresholds and we're hoping to get a little bit higher so we can do larger and more ambitious books in the future. But starting actually just, um, Tomorrow, actually, as we record this, um, we will be releasing Burning Dragon and Early Access PDF to uh, to 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 the uh, subscribers. That's the book I was talking about with the Gobi with the Gobi Desert. Yeah. Our next book after that will be one called Ape World on Fire, where the piece the, the adventure actually starts. It's written by Paul Stefko, and the adventure actually starts with in media res with the PCs in a car uh, in a car chase through the Netherworld. And so as you're chasing through the netherworld, the cars go through portals. So you end up like driving through a, a battle in Napoleon, in the, in the Napoleonic oh, Wars. So and then cool. you go through another portal and you're, you're driving through Miami Vice in the eighties. You go through another portal and you pop out in Shanghai in the thirties. And eventually you end up crashing your car in, uh, in the far future or crashing their car, depending if the chase is successful or not, uh, in the far right. future of uh, that Mad Max apocalypse in the future. And then you need to figure out why the apes you were chasing, uh, were trying to kidnap um, we're trying to kidnap a scientist. 
And so Very then that, cool. that flows out from there. Really fantastic adventure. After that, we'll have we'll temporarily have Paris by Paul Deed, um, and that is uh, that's what I was talking a little bit earlier. Where where so so there's these major junctures that are always open, and in the second edition, one of the major new new things was the idea of pop-up junctures, which just for a very short time, different time periods will pop up. So if you want to go to Miami Vice in the 80s, you can do that. Uh, this is a pop-up juncture specifically designed to go to Paris in 1944 so that you can, like I say, punch Nazis in the face uh, and, and deal with a giant, absurd Nazi tech tank that they're trying to build that's, in a villa. That's, that's very, very, very cool. So Magical Kitty saved the day. Oh, that's our new game. Yeah, um, that's my baby. Uh, that is a, that's a fantastic game. So Magical Kitty Save the Gay Day is an RPG where every player gets to play a magical kitty, and every magical kitty has a human. Now, some of those humans think they own the kitties, but that's patently ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous, yeah. yeah. Uh, so every, every kitty has a human. Every human has a problem, and so the magical kitties have to use their magical powers to solve the human's problems and save the day. So where did this concept get born? So, so the original design of this game is 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 uh, Matthew Hansen, and uh, Matthew had actually published the game as a PDF only release on Drive Through RPG several years ago. I want to say 2016, might have been 2015. Wow. Um, and so, so he published it, and it had you know a few people had bought it, and it was there. Uh, Michelle Nephew, who's one of the co-owners of Atlas had come to Con of the North, which is a local gaming convention in the Twin Cities every February. Uh, and Matthew was running his game there. He's also local. And so she signed up with her with her kids to play Magical Kitty Save the Day. And they loved it. She immediately, when she got home, went to drive through, bought a copy of the PDF, printed it out, and started running a campaign for her kids that lasted for, that is still going and has been going for several years now. The kids oh, love cool. it. Um, and a few years into this, um, she was thinking to herself, I, I, don't, I wish more people played Magical Kitty. It's such a great game. More people should know about it. And then her next thought was, wait, I own a game company. <laughs> and so this was right around the time that I was coming on board at Atlas. And so she was like, you should take a look at this. I took a look. And I was like, this game is great. The concept is great. Magical Kitties are fantastic. Everyone's going to love this. We should, we should do this. And we should use our... We should use our position in the industry as Atlas, this 30-year-old company, to bring this game, which is a fantastic game that everyone who plays it loves, to a wider audience. And so that was my first major project at Atlas, um, was, was working with Matthew, working with Michelle to develop Magical Kitties into the, into the game it is today. And one of the things we wanted to do was, was it is a game concept that is very appealing to young kids. So our primary target is 6 to 12-year-olds, but who are really selling the game to is, is their parents. Right. And we're saying, you know, if, if you are looking for a game to introduce your kids to role-playing games, this is the game to do it. Um, and, uh, and although I, I say that, but you know, the reaction we're having of like, oh, my God, it's Magical Kitties is, is everyone's reaction. Everybody loves right. playing this game. But, but so, like, one of the things I want to do, though, is I said, okay, well, this game is going to be targeted at creating uh, new players, being new players' first experience. And it will also be uh, – I also want to make sure that those new players have the tools to become – new game masters. Interesting. And so a part of my process with Magical Kitties it, on, on the cerebral erudite level was taking all of this material that I've been developing at the Alexandrian for the past 15 years that is aimed at, you know, the theory behind it and everything else, taking that material and figuring out how to repackage it into, right. into a package that like eight, nine or 10 year olds can use as their first gaming experience. Um, so, 
there's a, there's a few things we did. I'll come back to that in a second. But one of the things we did. So when you when you, it comes in a box, because we we one of the things we think is also like the other thing this game is aimed for is if you've played Mice and Mystics or Descent um, or Gloomhaven, those kind of RPGs in a box, as Will Wheaton calls them. Uh, if you've played those games and you're looking for the actual role playing experience, Magical Kitties is also just a great transitional game for that as well. So we wanted the game to be on the shelf next to board games. We wanted we wanted grandma to walk into the store and be like, that looks cute. I should get that for my my eight year old kid and, and do that for them. So when you open that box up, one of the first things you'll see in there is a is a little six by nine comic book called Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. And this is a choose your own adventure graphic novel. So going all the way back to our talk about how that that 83 red red box basic set with that solo play. Yeah, that was it, except now it's a graphic novel. Now it's an actual comic book. And so as you go through that comic book, you'll go on your first adventure. You'll be you'll create your first kitty, your first character, and you will also be taught all the rules for the game. So by the time you get to that into that comic book, you are ready to go play. And you've also gotten your first taste, like within within minutes of opening the box. You'll have had your first taste of what Magical Kitties is, what role-playing is. Obviously not the full experience, but just a little taste of what it can be. Uh, and that was really important to me to have that to have that experience for the players in the box there. Um, and then, on the flip side, like these GM tools I talked about, uh, the major thing I came up with there was the concept of adventure recipes. Um, is what I call them. And so the basic idea is that some of these structures we've been talking about, like the three clue rule for mysteries and party planning and so forth, those are structures and you can do an infinite number of mysteries. But the other thing you can also have is what I refer to as a scenario template. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with the uh, five room dungeon is a very, is a very famous example of this. Yeah. And and, and a good book, by the way, for those that haven't read it. Uh, there's also, uh, so I have one on my website called The Five Known Mystery, which is kind of the same thing. The fact that number five is in both of them isn't a coincidence. It's because you get about five, five interactions in an evening of gaming. So any of these templates tend to be like, here's the five things you have. Um, and so, uh, those templates are actually what we put in there is the recipes, essentially. So the recipes are, here is the exact pattern of nodes that you use to design a satisfying mystery. And the cool thing about templates like this, whether it's the five room dungeon or the five node mystery or raid scenario, is that the, the, the structure of that, that there's an introduction scene and then three scenes you investigate and then a conclusion, that's a proven structure. And you can pour different content into it, into each one of those sections and get a fresh experience each time. And so that's what we have in the book is we have like five or six of those recipes. And then the recipes are designed to basically say, and also here's the section of the book, which is all the ingredients. Here are the foes. Here are the troubles. Here are the, uh, excuse me, the problems. Here are the, um, the disasters. Take any of those, pour it into, into, into those recipes and you have your first adventure. So we also, of course, have an introductory adventure as well. So there's a real progress there. If here's your solo adventure, play your first game, play the introductory, run the introductory adventure for your, for players. Now you can create your own in a recipe. You can do that several times. Uh, it, it, you know, it, the feedback I've been getting is it's beginning to get is it, is it's working. I'm really interested about three months from now to see how many new GMs are taking their first steps from it. 
What sounds neat to me about it, Justin, is so um, I'm a big fan of uh, Say No to Evil, uh, mm. which is the Monty Cook, uh, which I think is a f- I've used it with my daughter, who's only seven years old, and she freaking loves it. Uh, and it's proof that um, playing a role-playing game is a more natural thing than we all, like, like we, we spend so much time trying to explain role-playing games, but you do it with a kid, and the kid's like, yeah, of course, this makes sense. Mm. This sounds fun. Let's do this. It sounds like a next step after that, right? So if, if depending on their age group, maybe they go from uh, Say No to Evil to, to something like this. Mm-hmm. Is that That's that's really cool cool it's a second step right yeah. and then from there then they can go play uh blades in the dark right. and then, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is what we're talking about like we were talking about like early in the development process we we're like well what is the actual age range we're aiming for and 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 john john nephew who's the who's the other co-owner and founder of the company um he said look here's the thing is at 12 years old they're just gonna go play D. like if you're 12 right. and you're looking to play your first role-playing game you're just gonna go play D. so if, if we're looking at a game that's targeting first-time players we're looking at that at, you know six to eight and our target is going to be 6 to 12. But, like, yeah, that's the, the, the age there where D&D isn't quite where they're at yet. Not what they're interested in. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, but you still want it. But they're still ready to do imaginative play in a more structured format. So last question for you, Justin. What are two or three games that more people should be playing? Well, Magical Kitty saved the day. And, <laughs> right. Oh, no, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll go with games I did not personally design. Or, uh, that sounds yeah. good. Uh, one I will mention that actually I published through my, my solo pr- press is actually a game called Tech Noir by Jeremy Keller. And I will not feel too bad about pimping this one because uh, Jeremy Keller self-published it. He was actually one of the first RPG Kickstarters back in like 2012. Self-published it. And then he left the industry. Um, but I loved this game so much. I approached him. I said, I love this game so much. I want to buy this game from you so I can continue publishing it. So I love the game so much. I, I, I publish it. Here's the thing about Technoir. There's two things about Technoir that make it cool. First, the concept is, well, zero is, is the concept is it's a cyberpunk future, uh, as a noir story. You are all playing noir type characters. And the central conceit there is that the way you advance the story and yourselves is by getting hurt. The more hurt you get, the more the story will advance and the more you as a character will advance pain and hurt. Uh, the classic image of the bloodied noir detective. Right. So the first cool thing about the game is the way action resolution works. Rather than having having skills or or attributes, the the game has verbs, and so it has verbs like shoot, for example, and you use the verbs to push adjectives onto other characters. So rather than like shooting somebody and doing hit point damage to them, you use your shoot verb to push the adjective of bloodied or perforated or just shot, you know, you don't have to get too fancy yeah. with it. Uh, and you, and, and so the mechanics both allow you to push those adjectives, but then also describe mechanical consequences to them, depending on how severe the adjective becomes. So there right. is like a fleeting adjective. There's a sticky adjective and a locked adjective, and those become more severe. Um, and so the one classic example I've talked about it is, is, is you, is the adjective of disarmed. So if I use my shoot verb to, uh, disarm you and it's fleeting, that probably means that I just shot the gun out of your hand. It's fleeting because you can just pick the gun back up again. Uh, if it is a sticky thing, it probably means that I've shot you in the arm and your arm is hanging limply next to you and you're going to have to go get some, some fix up for that. If I push disarmed as a locked adjective, it means that I have cut your arm off and it's laying on the floor over there and you're going to have to get a cyber limb to, to replace it. And so Very the game, cool. the game, the game codes that in both narratively and mechanically. Super awesome. The second cool, like, the thing is like that by itself would make a game that you'd be like, I have to try that game. The second cool thing it does is on the GM side of things and it has a, it has a system of plot mapping. And so the, the setting of the game is baked into transmissions 
And so transmissions have 36 different things. They have six objects, six connections, six factions, six threats, and so forth. Wow. And, and it's just like a little pamphlet, kind of like 16 pages that describe the city. But then the mechanics of the plot mapping, when the players take certain actions, they prompt a set of mechanics that the GM uses to randomly generate nodes out of the setting transmission and place them in relation to each other on the plot map in a way that generates the conspiracy at the heart of the noir story which is being told. And sometimes the story that's being told with the PCs is like, we've got to figure out what this conspiracy is and they're driving towards the heart of the conspiracy. And sometimes the conspiracy is happening and the players are just out on the periphery. Like, there's some massive conspiracy involving like androids and space aliens, but out on the periphery, they're like, well, we have this gig where we need to steal a couple of cars. And like, it's related, but like, but so this, this, this plot map generates all kinds of adventure seats for them to get involved with. And, you know, when I first approached the game and I see this little 16-page pamphlet, I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, that's, that's cool. I'll get like two or three sessions out of it or whatever. I have run 20 session campaigns out of a 16-page pamphlet because because that material is so powerfully leveraged by these plot mapping mechanics. I, Technoir is just this fantastic game, and, and my only regret of working at Atlas is I can't spend more time working on Technoir right now. Um, <laughs> that's cool. So... So that's one pitch. Uh, the other game people should check out that we haven't already mentioned, because Blades in the Dark is one I would, I would otherwise uh, call out here. Um, yeah, the, unfortunately, the, my listeners have been abused, but I had John Harper <laughs> on the show, and I'm a huge, huge Blades in the Dark fan, so they've, they, they've been bludgeoned by that, that stick a few times. I think I'll go all the way to like a storytelling game. I think I'll actually mention The Quiet Year by Avery Alder. Uh, Quiet Year is a... Um, is a, is a storytelling game, and the idea is that it's it's a post-apocalyptic future, but like a, like a it's not like the immediate zombie apocalypse. Like the apocalypse has happened, uh, horrible things have happened, and now we've reached a quiet year where there's like a small settlement of us who have basically gotten a little bit of security, and we are going to try to figure out like what this year entails. And it's a storytelling game, so we don't have specific we don't have specific characters that each of us have. Um, but there's a deck of cards, and again, there's some tables in there, and the cards generate in each season some improv prompts, essentially. And over the course of about two to three hours, you as a group are going to tell the story of what happens to this community during during the quiet year. And I've played it three or four times now, and every time I get a, a really unique and interesting uh, story. Um, just a really beautiful game. Um, so people should check that one out, too. Wonderful. Well, guys, we're going to have links to all of that stuff, um, where to get uh, this tech noir game and um, how to get in touch with uh, Atlas Games to make sure we can take advantage all, of all these things that by the time you're listening to them, they're out there waiting for you to pick up. Justin, I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And uh, for those of you that sat around and listened to this whole thing, thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you.
Very, very cool. All right, so last question for you, Justin. Uh, what are two or three games that uh, should be... be uh, let me try that again. For you to pick up. Uh, Justin, I really appreciate you taking... Now, just because I'm just thinking about this, just because this is how I found, is this the right place to go next? Do you think? Yeah, no, that actually transitions pretty well because that's actually how okay. I came back into the industry. Actually, okay, was, great. was through the Alexandrian. I just realized, just because I found it first doesn't mean it's first for you. <laughs> <laughs> Your world is around mine. All right, um, I'll bring us back. <laughs> Uh, but I have taken this gap and the, um, uh, so one sec, I've got a cat, which is, right, you may want to edit this little bit out here. We'll right? <laughs> There's outtakes at the end of every episode. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, k- kitty power. We'll come back to kitty powers later. That's right. The, <laughs> uh, but so, so I'm in the middle of this gap. More cerebral, right? More theory. Hang on, you know, hang on one um, sec. Hang on one sec. <laughs> yeah. Hang on. Right. Once, once the cat's gotten to the point of knocking stuff off because she right. she's unhappy about being where she wanted to be ten minutes ago. That's the. Uh, that's funny. Um, Justin Alexander. Justin designs games for Atlas Games and is behind the prolific Atlas. Justin designs for Atlas Games and is behind the prolific Atlas. So I'm going to uh, tell you right now um, the swim lanes that you talked about like I want a Twitch swim lane a YouTube swim lane um, I went through the same thing and finally my fans watchers and stuff like that finally taught me to get rid of that um, so my recommendation is is to create a playlist on your YouTube channel and dump your Twitch stuff there mm. um, and, and, and that'll allow you to keep it separate um, but I, I was under the misconception there's a huge overlap between like Twitch, YouTube and podcasts and, you know, so on and so forth. I'm realizing they're very discreet and there's there's very specific ways people want to consume. So that's my that's my only unsolicited advice I'll give you is just take your because tw- tw- they make it easy on Twitch. Just download mm-hmm. that shit, throw it into a playlist and say Twitch playlist and people will know that it's different. They'll know it's separate. Um, but you might as well get some monet- monetization off of that, too. Um, so there you go. Aren't you super happy? I told you that. Thank you. <laughs> just change your fucking life. <laughs> I've been I've been thinking about like I mean honestly like off off the record I've been thinking about like once I once the YouTube channel has an identity that's probably when I can, that's like, a good point turn yep. the fire hose in there you know yep. like let it, let it let it be its own thing at first that's fair that's fair yeah. um all right I'm trying to think of a way to start this. You still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around.
Take care.